Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. It is a rhythmic, tranquil sound that almost lulls you to sleep. The waves aren't large enough to really cause much tossing and, and turning. Just the gentle sound of them lapping up against the, the walls, the sideboards of the ship. It's combined with the sound of the small wooden oars that dip into the water and propel you forward. They're lifted out and, and gently again begin the same motion. No man is saying a word. They're not talking to one another, and yet they're all thinking exactly the same thing. Why couldn't you do one more? Why couldn't you do one more? Out of all the miracles, out of all the power we've seen from this guy Jesus, why couldn't he do just one more? What does he have against religious people? These are the leaders of our nation. These are the leaders of the temple and the synagogues. This is the very pinnacle of all things Jewish, of the Hebrew faith. So why couldn't you do one more? Every disciple is bewildered in his own thoughts about what just took place on the shore. And the question that is about to be posed from the, from the front of the boat is more of a warning to be listened to than, than something to be answered. And we find the entire book of Mark, it's about to flip. And they don't get it. This is going to be great news for, for all of us who have been Christians for a while. Maybe all your life, maybe you're just checking out Christianity. Maybe you're just checking out church. And, and yet you feel like there's so much of church and, and Christianity that you still don't get. This is going to be a story for, for all of us as we somewhere struggle with the truth about who is this guy. And what does it mean to live with him? What does it mean to have his spirit in our life? What does it mean to understand grace and mercy on a daily basis? What does it mean to live changed from the life that I once had? And in chapter 8 of the book of Mark, we finally come to the apex of what's been happening. The disciples walking with Jesus, boat trip after boat trip after boat trip, and they just don't get it. And we're about to see the turning point in the whole story. If you missed last week, you see in your life notes that half sheet of paper that we handed out to you when you walked into this room. You'll see that this is part two. And I'm going to catch you up real quick, so don't worry if you missed part one last week. We've covered the first seven chapters in the book of Mark, and we've been going verse by verse, story by story, trying to examine all the pieces of evidence as to what happened in Israel and in Jerusalem and in Galilee 2,000 years ago trying to, to find out what was going on with this, this, this guy Jesus, why he's still on the cover of our magazines 2,000 years later, why we still have Christmas and Easter on our calendar, why it's 2022, year 2022 this year, and it'll be 2023 next year, all of it pointing to him. Who is this man that has separated time, B.C. and A.D. as we know it, 
He's been traveling, walking with a group of 12 men and, and a few other disciples. And we get to chapter 8, and as you see in your life notes now, when things go from bad to worse, these guys don't get Jesus. But they're still allowed in the boat. And like I said today, the whole thing is about to come to a head. Mark chapter 8, verse 16. Here we go. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Now, now you can't start a story there. You can't start a movie with they discussed this and, like, like discussed what? What's going, what's going on here? What's the antecedent? What happened before? What are they discussing with one another? And so let me catch you up on what happened last week and over the past few weeks in case you haven't been here. Jesus has gone outside the area of the Jews. He's gone up to Tyre, to Sidon, and then he's come back down to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, still in Gentile territory, outside of Jewish territory, to the Decapolis. He's on the far side of the of Sea of Galilee. He's where no other good Hebrew or Jew would go at that time. He has shown specifically that the love of God is not bound to a specific group of people, but it includes everybody. And he's teaching. A large crowd shows up and they sit through his teaching for three days. And I don't care what type of provisions you may have packed, what, what you may have in your purse or your backpack or, or your picnic lunch, you don't have enough food to last for three days of teaching there. And at the end of these three days, he tells his disciples, he says, these people have been here for so long, they're too weak to travel back home. There's over 4,000 men in the crowd, plus women and children. And he turns to his disciples and he says, feed them. And the disciples say, well, we, we can't feed them. And he says, are you sure? Go find out. And the disciples come back and they said, yep, we don't have enough food to feed them. And he says, how much do you have? And they said, we have seven loaves. He says, give me your loaves. And he prayed and he gave thanks and, and he multiplied the loaves so that all of them were fed. But you know what? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is coming to a place of realizing, I don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. Are you sure? Do you have what I need? And your answer better be, I don't have what it takes. I don't care how successful I am, how, how much I own, how much property, how much my investment's worth. I don't care what my intellectual capacity is or my physical strength is. When you come to a God who says, can you do what I'm asking you to do? Your answer should be no. And then he's probably going to push your button and tell you, well, go see if you have what it takes. And once you check your resources, you still should come back and say, nope, Lord, I can't do it. And he goes, but can I have what you do have? And no matter how much you have, let me promise you, in God's eyes, it is very little. And when they surrender their seven loaves, he gives thanks, he blesses, and then he feeds over 4,000 men plus the women and children with those loaves. And there's leftovers. I love leftovers. <laughs> they cross by boat to the other side, back over to the, to the western shore. It's going to be a short trip, okay? We saw that last week. They cross back over, and the religious leaders called the Pharisees are waiting for them there on the shore, and they ask Jesus to show them a sign. They've heard all of his miracles. They've seen some of the miracles. They've heard about his teaching. They've pursued him now for the last four chapters, although they wouldn't pursue him in a Gentile territory, but they're waiting for him to return. They know of his teaching, and now they want a sign from heaven. 
They're, they're saying, I want God to prove himself to me. I want God to meet my standard of proof. And if God proves himself to me, then I'll, I'll follow him. And Jesus goes, okay, here's your sign. And they start rowing away. And we left last week with this understanding that, that sometimes if you're pushing God for a sign, you may be encountering the silence of God. And he's rowing away in this tiny wooden ship, crossing the lake again, as the disciples are thinking to themselves, why couldn't you just do one more? Why couldn't you have just shown them another miracle? What, what does he have against religious leaders? Why couldn't he have just made something appear and, and prove it once and for all? And they hear the words in red letters come from the bow of the small ship, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Yeast, okay, we talked about that last week. It's, it's that little bit of dough that, that's left over and you let it ferment, then you take and you put it in the next loaf so that the dough will rise. He says, beware the fermentation, the spoilage that might infect your life, the hypocrisy, the things that rot you inside, this thing that is evident in both the religious leaders and the political ruler, Herod. Beware of the kingdom of God being right in front of you and, you, and you make life about your power, your prestige, your position. See, this goes back to chapter 1 when Jesus started walking around and teaching and, and where John the Baptist was saying, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is not just heaven. It's not just a place where the followers of Jesus go. The kingdom is both a, a now and a then. It's both a present and a future. The kingdom of God is anywhere God rules and reigns in someone's heart. The kingdom of God is available to you. That's what Jesus and John the Baptist were announcing. It's near. It's right here. You just have to, you just have to accept it. You just have to grasp it. God's rule and reign in your life right here. Beware of the Pharisees and Herod that make life all about themselves. They're blinded to the kingdom of God that's right there in front of them. And as they row across the lake, Jesus says, beware of the yeast of these guys. And then we get to verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And here's the irony of the story. Jesus is just telling them, beware of making everything about you. And they're like, oh, it's because we don't have any bread. And Jesus is in front of the, in front of the boat, aware of their conversation. He's, he's like, seriously? You think it's about you and your lack of bread? Oh, well, yeah, we, we served the people and we had leftovers, but we, we forgot to bring, bring them with it. Oh, except for this, this one little loaf. We, we should have brought bread. We see what you're saying. Beware of the yeast and... and Okay, yeah, we don't have bread. And this triggers Jesus. Now listen to me. Give me a little bit of grace here. Um, it's printed in red letters. He's about to unleash eight questions on them, only two of which they have the ability to answer. And I don't know the tone of this section. I don't know if Jesus is just cool and calm and collected, just letting each question kind of drift out there and, and fall in silence in between. I don't know the tone, but, but you can see in these eight questions, he's had enough. For three chapters, these last three chapters, he's tried to show these guys who he is. This is the third boat trip that's gone wrong for the followers of Jesus. The first one, if you remember, they got caught in a storm. 
But they have Jesus in the boat, and so they wake him up. That's what you do. You wake, you wake the captain up, you wake, wake him up and say, hey, we need help here. So they wake him up, you know what they do? They go, we're going to die. And he's like, seriously? Don't you have any clue who I am? And so he gets up and he speaks to the storm. And he says, be calm. The little translation is, be muzzled. And they're like, wow, we're sorry. Who is this guy? Who's this in the boat with us? Seriously, you've been walking with Jesus from town to town and village to village, and you still have no idea who he is? Nope. Second boat trip. Now he puts them in the storm. He stays ashore. He's praying with the Father. He puts them out, and they encounter a storm. And I'm sure here he's trying to to, to spur them on to a deeper faith. And he's like, okay, we've done this before. You should have this by now. Now I'm going to show you. I, I don't have to be physically with you in the boat. You just have to know that I am with you in spirit. You're in the storm. Let's see how you do. And what do they do? They freak out in the storm. And so Jesus goes walking out on the water to them. And, they, and he gets there, and they go, oh, praise God. Jesus is finally here. We can relax. No, that's not what they did. They screamed, it's a ghost. <laughs> and the scripture says that their hearts were hardened. They still have no idea who he is. They still cannot fathom that the creator of water can walk on water. They don't get it. They don't get him. And here we are the third time now. They're in the boat. And he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of being so religious or so caught up in yourself that you cannot see the kingdom of God right in front of you. Oh, we should have brought bread. I told you to bring the bread. No, I told you to bring the bread. How come no one brought bread on the trip? And then here go the questions from Jesus. It says in verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Silence. They don't have an answer, do they? There's nothing there. Have you ever driven down the road with the kids in the back of the car, and all of a sudden World War III breaks out? She touched me. Well, he looked at me. Well, she's on my side of the sip. Well, he took off his shoes, and his feet stink. Did you ever get to the point as a, as a dad or a mom, and I'm not saying that I did, um, where you just turn around and you're like, knock it off, kids. I'm trying to drive here. Yeah. And the car just goes silent. And everybody's like, ooh, we just pushed dad's buttons. And it's silent for, you know, maybe 15, maybe 30 minutes. And, and then it's the mom, it's Lou, who, who, she's the one who breaks the silence. Well, you know, I think it's about time we need to stop for a bathroom break, Okay. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts talking again, and everybody says, okay, dad's good, mom's good, we're okay. Well, this is the boat trip. Guys, beware of the kingdom of God right in front of you, but you don't see it. Beware of treating Jesus as if he's something that's there for your power, your position, your prestige. Beware of being clueless about who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. Oh, it's because we don't have any bread. Why are you talking about having no bread? Silence. Not even Peter speaks. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? 
He's saying, what's wrong with you? Is it a heart condition? Are you deaf? Are you blind? I've been doing this now. Three boat rides. We're in chapter 8. Do you still not get this? Silence. None of the 12 is going to speak at this point. He goes on, don't you remember? Don't you see what I've done? Do you, do you know that I've already proven myself? He's like, you don't have an answer to any of my questions. Okay, let's do it. Let's, here, easy one, easy one for you. Remember two chapters ago when we had 5,000 people, the first one, and you guys gave me five loaves, and they're like, uh, yeah. And you give me five loaves for 5,000 men plus women and children. How many basketfuls of leftovers did you pick up? One word answer, isn't it? What's the answer? Uh, 12. They won't say anything else. Pretty sure I got this one right, it was 12. Okay, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, remember we just fed 4,000, just a couple weeks ago we fed 4,000 men plus women and children. You gave me five plus two is what, seven? How many baskets full of leftovers did you pick up then? Seven. Do you still not understand? He goes, guys, I do pretty well when there's no bread. I'm the best I know at feeding thousands with no bread. You guys think it's about whether or not you have bread? I'm trying to warn you about making life about you. And ironically, you guys have just made it about what you have and what you don't have. He goes, that's hilarious. You don't get who I am and what I, what I do yet, do you? And they're like, we're not going to answer that one. You have ears, but you haven't heard. How long have you been coming to church, guys? You have eyes, but you fail to see God's purpose and provision, his value, his grace, his mercy, his plan for your life. Beware of taking all that Christ is and making it about blessing you, blessing your family, blessing your health, blessing your business. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to bless you. Beware of coming to God like you have something to offer that you can help him out, like he needs you. You have nothing he needs. But the mystery of heaven that boggles me more than anything else is, is the God that still delights in using you and me and, and wanting you and me. He formed us in our mother's womb, Psalm 139 says. He tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. He says you are God's poema, his poem, his masterpiece. You're his physical expression of love, but he doesn't need you. The point of the story is I do very well without you. Why are you discussing that it's all about you? And here's right now what separates the disciples from the Pharisees. The disciples are getting eight questions. Eight questions are, are begging for understanding. Eight questions are begging for relationship. Eight questions are, are begging for eyes to be open. Eight questions are ears to hear. The ultra-religious, the, the Pharisees, they don't get questions. They get condemning because their hearts are already hardened. They've already made up their mind. They're just testing God. They don't want to see the truth that's in front of them. They're afraid that Jesus is going to take their crowds away from them, their resources, their position, their finances. So the Pharisees don't get questions. They just get condemnation. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you're real pretty on the outside, like, like you're all painted up, like you've got it all together, but inside you're nothing but dead bones. And this shows in our narrative, the disciples, even though they don't get it, they don't understand Jesus, they don't understand his grace and his love, and, and yet he wants them, they're still allowed to walk with him, they're still allowed on the boat with him, because there's still hope 
for them to get it. There's still an openness at this point of the story of their lives. An ignorant heart cannot harden itself toward God. Only a knowing heart can harden itself against God. And that is why those closest to Jesus, the Pharisees and the disciples, they stand in the gravest danger. It's those that know God and those that know the story. It's those that, that see this but refuse to yield to it. They refuse to surrender to it as we talked about last week. That's a heart that's hardened. It's not people that don't know yet. It's, it's not people who are just trying to understand, who, are, who don't have the truth. He sees where the religious leaders are and their hearts are hardened. And he doesn't want his disciples in the same boat, no pun intended, as the Pharisees. Beware of thinking that Christianity is all about you. And they don't get it. So as the boat hits the other side, they walk. And we have the only miracle of its kind in the entire Bible. Verse 22. This is, this is about to get good. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Now, we've seen miracles before. We've seen people bring those that are paralyzed, those that can't walk, those that are blind, those that are, are lepers. This one's different. And once again, the crowd shows up. Once again, friends bring a friend or a family member that is blind, and they beg Jesus to heal the man. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd. We've seen at least seven times thus far in the book of Mark the secrecy of Jesus. I'm going to take him outside the city, outside the crowd. This is because he knows the human heart. The more people that see me do miracles, the more they're going to want to make me an earthly king. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be the type of king that everybody's looking for. I'm a king that's come to, to sacrifice and, and to surrender. And no one wants a king like that. Everyone wants a king that comes and kicks Roman butt and, and brings peace and, and prosperity and brings Israel to be in charge and, 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 and a world, world power. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be that king. And the more they see me do miracles, the more they want me to be that kind of king. And they have no clue the, the kind of king that, that I want to be. I want to set them free. I want hearts to be free. I want contentment to be overflowing. I want there to be joy in the house. I want relationship to be restored. And my chief concern is not your bank account. It's, it's not your political freedom. I want spiritual freedom for all people. I've not just come to, to make your life better. I've come to bring you eternal life. Life abundantly, both here and in the future. So I'm going to take him outside the city. And he takes the man outside the city. He spits and he puts it on the guy's eyes. I know that sounds gross, but that's what it says he did. And he puts his hand on him. And then, and then don't miss anything. He asks him this question. He says, do you see anything? This is the only time in the Bible, in the entire Bible, that Jesus asks a question to check to see if someone is healed. He doesn't do this anywhere else. He heals the guy, and then he's like, okay, how many, how many fingers am I holding up? You know, he doesn't heal the, the paralyzed guy and say, hey, let's dance. Uh, can you move now? He doesn't heal the leper and say, is it all gone? You might want to check under your shirt, take, take a look, make sure all, all the skin is okay. He doesn't check on his work. Look at the response of this guy in verses 24. It says, he looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. 
He says, can you see? Yeah, but it's kind of it's fuzzy. Which begs the question, if he's blind, how does he know what trees look like? And there's two options there, and I'm not trying to belittle blindness by any means. And as a blind man, I'm sure that he at some time has probably felt a tree so he can interpolate there and he understands the structure of it, etc. Or, or he may have had sight earlier in life and lost his sight at, at some point along the way. Either one could work for this text. The point is, I see, but not real good. And the friends that brought him now are smiling, uh, well, can you see this? Can you see this? And I see people, but everything's kind of fuzzy. Well, well, what happened here? Well, obviously, it's the trip in the boat, the car ride with the kids, you know, with this, what's gone wrong with the family? Is Jesus frustrated? Is he disoriented? Is he not quite up to full strength? Well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I colored in, in, in Sunday school. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story are followers of Jesus who don't get Jesus. Remember, he's on this trip Part of the overarching theme of this trip in a Gentile country and all was to train his disciples. And so the very next miracle he will do, he's going to do it different than any other miracle in the Bible. He's going to give them an object lesson. He tells them, I'm going to heal you. Do you see? The guy says, kind of, not real well. So Jesus does it a second time. And in verse, uh, verse 25, it says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus touched him a second time. And now emphatically, emphatically, three times in the text in verse 25, you can underline that there in your life notes, three times it tells us his eyes were open, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. Now that's rather redundant, isn't it? He, he touched him again. We could just say he touched him again, the blind man saw, good job. That's all we need. No, no, no. His sight was restored. His eyes were opened, and he saw everything clearly. Three times the text wants to make clear, now he can see, now he can see, now he can see. For three chapters, this has been brilliantly conducted. Every story brought together for this point in the text. The little stories I knew of Jesus my entire life in Sunday school, they were never supposed to be read just as an isolated paragraph. I, I challenge you at the beginning of this series, those of you that were here in October, to sit down and read through the entire book of Mark in one sitting. You could probably do it in about 52 minutes, if not less. You could, you could certainly read up what we've gone to up, to up to today in about 20 minutes or so. The Holy Spirit, through Mark, has written his book. Everything has a flow. Everything has a purpose. And for three chapters, it's been building. Those closest to Jesus who knew him best, the Pharisees who had the entire first five books of the, of the Bible memorized, the Pharisees who have religious ceremonies and traditions down pat, the Pharisees who have made it their commitment to walk with God on a daily basis, following every single jot and tittle in the book, and the disciples who, who live day in and day out, 24-7 with the real Jesus. Every day hearing his teaching. Every day seeing the miracles. Those that know him best, they, they don't have a clue who he is, and they don't understand what's going on. They don't get it. You see, in the Bible, in the physical realm, we've been, we've been dealing with miracles of, of the deaf and the blind. But the entire story has been the followers of Jesus who are deaf and blind spiritually. It's why emphatically he asked the questions over and over again. Do you have ears but fail to hear? Do you have eyes but fail to see? The rhetorical questions, he understands what's going on. 
None of them gets the kingdom of God and it's right in front of them. Well, they know that Jesus is in their boat, but they have no clue of the Jesus that is in their boat. So he bookends his teachings about who he is with two miracles. One that we caught two weeks ago about a man who was deaf and mute, and Jesus took him away from the crowd, and he spits, he touches the man's tongue, he wiggles the guy's ears, and then he says, epitha, and he, he says, be opened. This is a strange miracle for a God that can, that can speak a word, and people can be healed from a distance. For a God that people with faith can just touch the hem of his, of his garment, of his robe, and be healed. He's working hard on this guy. Why? Because he's a God that understands that you don't get it. And he's going to try every means possible in patience and compassion to get you to get this. It's a God that says, I can heal with a touch or word, but I know who you are. I know where you are. If you are deaf and mute in the first century and you have no language, or, or those in your home can understand the little bit of sign language you've worked out over the years, but, but there's no American sign language, no standard. And when you go out in public and the market and you try your best to get people to understand you, what you, what you want done and how many you want, and, and you're trying to barter with sign language, and the Son of God drops down on his knees and says, I understand you. Be open. And a flood of noise rushes into the man's ears and he hears his own gasp and an exclamation from his own lips followed by those caught in religion that refuse to hear and see the things of God over and over and over again. And so then he finds a blind man. He says, I'll touch you. Can you see anything? Not yet. The eyes, the eyes or the organ of perception for three chapters, Jesus has been trying to work on people who don't perceive who he is. And he culminates this with a miracle of perception. I will keep touching. I will still work with you. Do you get me? I will, I will keep on whatever it takes to reach you, to open your eyes, to open your ears spiritually. Do you fathom what I want to do in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, with your finances, with your property? Do you have any clue what the kingdom of God can do with you when Jesus rules in your, in your life, he, when he reigns in your life on a, on a daily basis? You don't. How many ears do you have and you still don't get this? Why do you have two eyes but still can't see this? And he doesn't find a new boat. He doesn't flip the 12 off to the sun and, and start all over again. He now demonstrates, you keep walking with me. You keep allowing me to touch you. And I know you don't see this. I know you don't get this. Oh, spoiler alert, they're going to walk on. Next, uh, later in this own chapter, they're going to walk on, and Jesus is finally going to ask them, well, 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 who do you think that I am? And Peter goes, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But he has a completely different idea about what Messiah is than what Jesus does. And so he almost immediately begins to try and talk Jesus out of being Jesus. Way to go, Peter. Nice job of getting it. But for the next chapter and a half, they are going to argue about who's the greatest. They're going to argue about who's going to be number one through 12. They're going to argue about who's going to be number one and number two. They're going to make bets on that. They're not going to get this. And the last night of Jesus' life, they're going to promise, if you die, we all die. We're all going to go down, we're all going to get down the ship with you, Jesus. And when they have that opportunity, they all go running away. They take off in the darkness. One will hang himself, ten will stay hidden, and one will come back because he feels guilty, and, and he'll end up cursing Jesus three times. And Jesus says, still, I will take the cross for you. You haven't seen the empty tomb. 
you haven't sensed the power of the Spirit, I know you don't get this. Keep pressing. Keep pressing into Jesus. Keep allowing his words and, and his touch on your life. And you'll start to see this grow and grow and grow. What a story. Before we go, let me give you four things about spiritual growth to go home with. Some application here. And this, if you haven't taken any notes or written anything down this time, just fill in these few blanks. Number one about spiritual growth. It doesn't just happen automatically. You growing with God, understanding God, walking with Jesus, understanding the, the Holy Spirit in your life, understanding surrender, it doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. I've got a guitar that sets in my living room. Yes, I can do a few chords on it, stuff like that. But I've learned, I don't just learn to play the guitar because I've got a guitar setting in my living room. I can have people like Bruce or Scott Wesley Brown or Bob Bennett or Paul Aldrich sign it and put their signature on it. But you know what? That guitar still just sets there. And I, I need to take the time to practice, to do something, to, to learn, to make myself available, to, to hone my ability to play that guitar. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Number two, spiritual growth. It's not about what you know. Spiritual growth is not about what you know. Who knows the most about Jesus in the story? There's two groups of people, the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees have already hardened their hearts, so they're condemned. Jesus is, is cutting into their crowd, their funds, their finances. And, and so you know, those pronouns are what gives it away. There, 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 there. It's the same with Herod. That's all he cares about is himself. And the disciples are wrestling with this in their life. They haven't yet surrendered. They haven't yet surrendered to what Jesus is trying to teach them about himself and, what, and finding out that it's his life. They need to give their lives to him. It's not about what you know. There's many people that know the Bible and can quote the Bible back and forth but don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. Thirdly, spiritual growth is far more about our behavior than our beliefs. It's about our behavior than our beliefs. It's far more about how you treat your spouse, your neighbor, that person that bugs the living daylights out of you. It's not a personal private matter. I'm afraid that in evangelicalism, we've made it too much a personal private matter. You know, yes, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that's not what it's about. I believe we've overemphasized that in our Western context. The Bible, the, the context, the culture the Bible is given into is a community culture. We're all in it together. We're in the boat together. You know, you won't find a single lone ranger or Tano in the Bible. Nowhere does it say that salvation is just about me. And yes, I've heard the preacher say, well, if it was only for you, Jesus would die. But he didn't. He died for the entire world to make salvation possible for everybody, not just me. And I'm afraid we get very selfish about this, very self-centered about that. It feeds our self-centeredness. It's always about how we, how we treat others and how, about how we love others. It's always about what God wants to do in his in this family, not in isolation. Jesus, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he could have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And he could have left it at that. But he didn't. He didn't. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? And then he taught who, his neighbor, who your neighbor is. And, and he showed him that your neighbor wasn't the person you thought necessarily was going to be your neighbor. It's always about God wanting us to do this together because he knows that we need each other. I need you. You need me. We need us. Spiritual growth is always about now that you're a follower, you're going to be light and salt 
to a dark and tasteless world that needs a preservative. It can't be just about you and God. Nowhere in the Bible do you find spiritual people that just walk around, it's just about them and God and nobody else. You see, spiritual growth is not just about you. It's about your behavior and your interaction living in community. Number four, it's not about going to church. Now, just because you go to church or Bible study doesn't mean you're going to grow spiritually. Now, you should do both. You should go to church. You should be involved in, in, in Bible study. You should be someplace where you're worshiping with a, with a body. You should be someplace where you're growing together in community. But it, think about it. If you go to the bank and you spend two hours each afternoon for the next three months at the bank, are you going to get any richer? It's not how it works. You're spending more and more time in the bank. It doesn't change the printout on the ATM. It doesn't change, change your bank statement. You're hanging out at, at church each week. It doesn't change your printout spiritually. You may pick up something, hear something now and then, but we're talking about life change. It's not something that happens overnight. And like anything else in life, a, a sport, any education, any other profession, it's something that's going to take time and, and take, take effort. And effort and work don't get us salvation, but it does help us grow in maturity and Christ-likeness. It's not the head knowledge of those walking with Jesus that impresses Jesus. It's the heart like that woman in Tyre that we looked at a few, a few weeks ago. That one who is the most unlikely of unlikely people that would be able to come to Jesus. And he commended her faith. She said, I don't know why you'd ever use me. I don't know why you'd want me. I know that I'm not enough. I know I don't have the pedigree. I'm not a Jew. I'm a pagan. But I know this. My ears have heard and my eyes have seen what you've done and who you are question for you as you go home to, to chew on. If you can look back on, your, on your, your, your last two years or maybe your five years, where were you spiritually versus where you are now? And some people say, well, that's, that's hard to quantify. Well, what do you mean? And well, spiritually, where was your spiritual walk with God? Like, um, how much do I know? No, we said it's not about knowledge. Well, did I go to church? No, it's not going to church or chapel regularly. No, we just said all that. It's, not, it's great to go to church, great to go to Bible study, but those don't necessarily make people spiritually mature. I know folks that have been church, in church for 50, 60, 70 years, and they're still spiritual babies. And you've probably met people like that too. But two years ago, where was your heart? Where is it now towards God and towards people? Where is your generosity? Where is your love for, for people in your life? Where, how is your forgiveness are you becoming more and more conformed to the character of Christ? Is there more and more of you decreasing so that he can increase in your life? If you look back and say, Walt, um, there's been no spiritual growth, and the question is, well, what's blinding you? What's hindering you from, from growing spiritually? What's, what's hindering the rule and reign of God in your life? What's keeping you from waking up every single day saying, Lord, this isn't my life, it's yours? And I'm excited about what we're going to do today. The point of the story is God reaches out to the broken. He reaches out to the deaf and the blind, and he says, I speak your language. Be open. Be open to what God wants to do. Keep pressing into Jesus. Allow him to keep pressing into you. Let him into your life and, and through your life. He gets sometimes that you don't get it, that I don't get it. And that seems to be okay as long as we keep pressing in to him.
What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.